My name's Alex Clark. Welcome to the first episode of the Cambridge Literary Festival podcast. We're launching on the weekend of the first ever Listening Festival, our response to the pandemic that has affected us all. And my guest this time is the inimitable Hadley Freeman, journalist, writer about fashion, teen movies, the culture at large, and now her family. She's here to talk about her extraordinary book, her family memoir, House of Glass. As I was writing it, I just kept thinking, no one is ever going to read this. This is going to be so embarrassing. It's going to come out in March. And I'm going to think, why did I spend 20 years on it? And only my parents are going to be interested. Everyone else is going to be like, oh, God, another bloody Jewish memoir, Roy Vey, whatever. And then it came out and it got these nice reviews. And then, of course, the global plague happened, which felt like some Old Testament retribution on me for stirring up ghosts I wasn't supposed to disturb. Um, and then I thought, OK, now it's definitely going to just disappear. And it hasn't. So it's two massive shocks to me that anyone's reading it and that it somehow seems to be persisting during all this. So I'm incredibly overwhelmed and grateful. Well, you say in a in a kind of way that's funny, the idea of kind of stirring up ghosts. But it is a feeling of transgression to write a memoir, isn't it? You have to have that. You have to have that feeling of should I be doing this? What am I doing? Delving into the world. <laughs> that is very much what I felt for 20 years, which is part of the reason why it took me 20 years to write it. And up to the day it came out, I thought, what have I done? Is this going to cause enormous schisms in my family? Because uh, only my father read it beforehand uh, for my family. And he only asked me to take out two words. And that was it. All my cousins have now read it and everything, and they've all loved it. So it, that has been a huge shock and relief. But yes, of course, I was thinking, why am I opening these letters from people who thought they'd shut them you know, a long time ago and probably thought they'd thrown them away? But there was something inside me. I cannot describe it. It's, I mean, the only feeling I can compare it to is the feeling of wanting children. It's sort of illogical and yet a compulsion, if you have it. I just had a compulsion to write this book in the same way I had an illogical compulsion <laughs> to have children, I guess. You just felt that it was something that wasn't going to go away until you addressed it. And as you say, it took... 20 years um it was I know we keep well except there was a reason for that I mean there's always a reason for everything and certainly you wrote other books in the meantime you've written (laughs) an enormous amount of journalism you've been productive in all sorts of ways so we can I think fairly assume that it's not a question of writer's block um but I think it was having read this story which started off as the story of your grandmother your father's mother but then spread to encompass her siblings and indeed the wider family and indeed the wider world Mm. it seems to me that there was a question of how would you ever bring all these strands together that was a huge issue um so it started off being very much I want to tell the story of my grandmother and then in 2006 when I found this shoebox in the back of her closet and had all these letters between her and her brothers and I sort of began to get a vague idea of what was happening with her brothers over the century I realized you know, it's impossible to not tell the story without her brothers. And also her brothers are just a writer's gift. You know, each one of them had these extraordinary stories. So then I knew I had to do the four of them. And then in about 2015, 16, when I was thinking, okay, enough of this now, I should probably start writing. Other global events were happening. So there was this rise of anti-Semitism in Europe on the right, the labor issue with anti-Semitism on the left, Brexit, Trump. So all these other things going on. And I 
I really couldn't figure out how to tell this story, how to unpick it. And I met this wonderful man called Jonah Cummings, who lives in Israel, through my colleague and friend, Jonathan Friedland. And Jonah is like the Jew whisperer. He basically coaxes memoirs out of angst-ridden Jews. And I sat down with him and sort of laid out this story in one big gush. And he said, it sounds like there are different strands of the Jewish experience here. And it just clicked then. And I thought, yes. I see it. I got so it. So you are, you're telling at some level the story of 20th century Jews, but a very kind of particular part. I mean, you grew up associating your grandmother with with France. She was French. You talk about how she seemed to almost embody a certain kind of French culture and French woman. But your family, your father's family originally were from Poland, weren't they? Well, actually, it wasn't even Poland then. It was a sort of, as you say, a kind of corner of the Austro-Hungarian empire. It was shtetl life. Yeah, exactly. So it's very much a story of Eastern European jewellery. So they were born in this little town called Sarnoff, which is 18 kilometers from Oswiecim, better known as Auschwitz. And it was my grandmother and her three older brothers. They left in about 1920 to 24, various periods they all left, um, because of the pogroms after World War I, when the Catholics were coming into the various Jewish towns and beating up the Jews. And this turned out to save their lives because obviously if they'd stayed, they would have all been sent to Auschwitz as soon as World War II happened, which is what happened to every other Jew who stayed in Sharnoff. They all went to Paris and joined their cousins there. Two of them went to work in the Marais, which was the Jewish kind of quarter at that point. One of them, Alex, decided with sort of absurd perversity that he wasn't just going to be a tailor. He was going to be a couture designer and he succeeded and set up his own salon. And my grandmother became a pattern designer. So they were all working in the fashion industry in Paris. And then the war started and all four of them went in completely different directions. And as you tease out in the book, they kind of typified certain attitudes, certain ways of being that were each a kind of response to how they were identified. And of course, you you mentioned Alex there. Now he is the colourful character that kind of bestrides this book. I mean, to say the least, you know, (laughs) friend of Chagall, friend of Picasso. He's never down, is he? He's never out, um, even when kind of terrible things are happening. And you call him, you call his story defiance. That's the thing that typifies his story. But what an amazing person to have in your family and somebody that you just kind of met as a young child, very kind of fleetingly, didn't you? Well, actually, he's the one I knew best because he died in 1999. So I was 21 then. So I did used to go to Paris with uh, my dad and have lunch with him and in, in, with Alex in Alex's apartment. And you'd walk in and there was Monet's water lilies. There were Van Gogh's, you know, the Matisse in the bathroom. There were these, you know, incredible sculptures everywhere, Giacometti's. I mean, it was this absurd thing. And because you're a child or a teenager, this is in your family, you don't really question it. It was only when I got embarrassingly old, when I should have thought about it sooner, I suddenly thought, that's quite weird that someone in my family had a Van Gogh in their house. You know, how did this happen? I grew up, you know, very privileged, thanks to my father, but my family is by no means wealthy. You know, my grandmother, grandfather, they raised my dad in the lower middle class. So it's not like I come from a grand family, and Alex certainly didn't. He came from, you know, an absolute ghetto, and he made this life for himself in Paris. And there were definitely times during the book when I thought, should I actually just be writing about Alex? Because I worried that he was going to overshadow everything. And I'm glad, judging from reviews or um, readers' responses, that he hasn't, although people are definitely very interested in him, because he was a completely 
well, I want to say unique character, but I don't know if he was really. I mean, I think he typifies a certain generational way of being. He was, he'd been so hurt by Poland and then by France turning against him. You know, nothing was going to keep him down. And I have met other Polish Jews of his generation in my life who are kind of like him, who are very tough and accomplish extraordinary things. And it's interesting, I had an interview with Haaretz a few weeks ago, which is um, an Israeli liberal newspaper. And the um, reporter there said, you know, when I was reading about Alex, he reminded me of Roman Polanski. And I thought, you know, I actually know what you mean. Like, I'm not saying that Alex wasn't, you know, he wasn't done for having sex with a 13 year old like Polanski, but he was someone who came from nothing like Polanski and made this extraordinary life for himself. And I think in that sense, he does typify one strand of the Jewish experience. Well, I think, though, it's absolutely the case that his story, it's an embroidery, the whole thing. You have to have the other brothers and indeed your grandmother, because then you get this sense of everybody's very different reactions to this shared background, to the experiences of going through the pogroms. And then as you explain so impactfully and movingly, the escape to Paris, and then suddenly the Second World War is on its way and Hitler is on its way. So it's basically escape and a a sort of recapture. It's the world being shattered again. That must have been very intense to write about. It was. And I'm glad I did it then instead of now during the coronavirus, because actually going through this in no way, in no way, I just want to say, am I comparing what we are going through now to what people went through in the Second World War? But, you know, we, we think about people in in the world wars in the past and think, oh, yeah, OK, people were living their lives and then a world war happened. Well, you know, they were in olden times and they could cope. But actually just going through this and suddenly our worlds have stopped, you suddenly realize, oh, no, these were people who had plans, who had dreams, who had ambitions. And all that was taken away from them through causes that were not their fault, through things that they could not have foreseen. I've had very minor disruptions, really, but it has given me an extra level of understanding of actually what my grandmother must have been feeling, which is that she was just getting better from pleurisy. She was no longer in sanatoriums as she'd been throughout her 20s. She was engaged. And suddenly the world stopped for her. World War II came and she was sent off away, tricked by Alex into going to America. And, you know, everything that she thought that her life was going to be was taken away. You know, people make fun of politicians and everything for calling this a war and they're right to. But that sense of the world, you know, suddenly stopping is something that I think a lot of people are experiencing now. And in a way, it's, I think, weirdly why the book is maybe not so badly timed after all, despite coming yes. out during a yes. global pandemic. It's, it sort of keys into that that trauma, as if you say, having just total disruption to the life that you thought you were living, that you were living. What interests me is that the, the kind of spark, I mean, you know, I'm sure this book was building up in all sorts of ways throughout your life, but the spark was finding a shoebox hidden away in the back of your grandmother's closet and finding all sorts of photos and letters and oh heavens a drawing by Picasso I I have to say I don't think I'm gonna find a shoebox in my family's events with that but amazing moment but I I mean what of course springs to mind is the extent to which your grandmother ever talked about this in your memory during her lifetime was it something you just had no idea about I really had no idea of, and no one in the family knew she had that shoebox. And when I found it, I was 28 years old because it was 2006. And at the time I thought, oh, what's interesting is in the shoebox. And I used what was in the shoebox to sort of get me on my journey. And then 
as I sort of started to allow myself to think more about my grandmother's sadness, her feelings, rather than using the shoebox as an object of clues, I realized that the shoebox itself was a massive clue, that she had kept all this in the back of her closet without ever talking about it and ever talking about anything that was in it. And I found that so almost overwhelmingly poignant that there were times when I, I actually couldn't write the book anymore. And that's why I kept writing all these other books. It's basically procrastination. So I was like, I can't think about this anymore. I need to write about 80s movies. <laughs> so I just go off and write this completely random book about 80s movies. It was like, I cannot deal with my grandmother's sadness right now. But um, I just felt I can't let her sadness sort of vanish with me. I, I just wanted people to know this is what normal people went through during the war. You know, they lost everything and they just had to keep their sadness tucked away in some metaphorical or literal closet in the back of their minds, basically. There was that that sense, of course, when people and, and, and the, the thing that your grandmother uh, typifies, the strand that you sort of associate her with is, of course, emigration and making that new life. And there was a sense that people just felt, I think, that they had to commit to that new life, even when, as as with your grandmother, it was really quite far from what she wanted and, and not an enjoyable life in many ways. But there was that feeling, do you think this was it, that, that okay, this is the new reality and now we've got to make the best of the new reality? Well, that was definitely the case for her. But the reason I wanted to tell her story from the beginning was because I knew she represented two stories that don't get told very often. One is actually Jews not being happy to escape to America. You know, the, the story that Jews come to America and greet it like the promised land, that is a story that all of us American Jews are fed from a very early age, from our Hebrew schools, from our parents, you know, America. Thank God they got out of Europe. They're in America. And I would look at my grandmother and see that she actually wasn't very happy to be in America. And I wanted to somehow tell that story. And the other part of her story is, of course, that she's a woman. I haven't come across that many stories of average female citizens during the war, you know, not sort of secret spies or anything, but just women who escape, you know, and then, you know, raise children quietly in the suburbs, because their stories are not in archives, their stories are not in history books, but actually their stories are kind of more reflective of the immigrant experience than many others. I wanted to tell that story of women who weren't able to join the military like her brothers were, weren't able to kind of run secret spy networks like her brothers were doing. Only thing they could do was get married and raise children with a husband they didn't really like that much. That was the only option available to them during the war. And, you know, I, I'm glad that people seem to be picking up on my grandmother's story in the book because I did think, oh God, you know, she is just going to be totally overshadowed by her brothers in this book. We've got Alex, who is just Mr. Superstar. We've got another brother who goes off to Auschwitz and people are always interested in those stories. And then Henri, the oldest brother, who actually does get a bit overshadowed. I mean, he had an extraordinary story too, where he was in the resistance and, you know, inventing machines and saving secret documents and all that, and then becomes enormously wealthy after the war. But actually people do seem to be clicking into my grandmother's story and relating it to the women in their family. Yes, yes. I mean, I must say I was beguiled by Henri's story because, well, he was trying to be a businessman and he wasn't great at it. And he married the woman who served him his bankruptcy papers. And then he, I don't know why I'm explaining this to you, you, you know all this, but for our listeners, you know, they're your family, you know this. I love the fact, there is this wonderful thing, I think you say very near the beginning, you say we are a family of anecdotalists. And I think the moment you kind of reveal that he made a sort of copying machine and he called it the Omnifot. And I just thought, that's the most wonderful word. And you can like all these little 
material details about people's <laughs> lives, which seems so kind of, you know, you'd put that in a film, wouldn't you? This kind of, you know, and, and they are what people's are. And, and you have to kind of transport the reader back to this past with all its sounds and smells and languages and places and what it looks like. That's a very hard thing to do. It is, especially if you are very much not a historian, which I am definitely not. I mean, I gave up history. I didn't even do history GCSE. I'm so sorry, everybody. So I was very, very conscious of my ignorance. And I spent weeks in the British Library just like copying out details from, you know, life in Paris in the 30s, these kinds of books and writing down what like the street lamps looked like and what the buses looked like and everything trying to I was so worried about making any mistake in the book later I thought oh this was a waste of time and actually it wasn't because I was able to incorporate some stuff I mean there were times when I was writing it when I would find myself googling what date was crystal knocked and thinking I can't believe I'm writing a book (laughs) that basically during the war and I don't even know when crystal knocked was so I was very conscious of my ignorance so I'm very glad Alex if you think I've somehow managed to to convey a sense of what it was like then because I did read so much about Paris in particular, and also Poland and then Long Island. So I could see it in my mind's eye, what these places looked like. And I'm glad if it somehow came out on the paper too. And you also went went back to a lot of them, didn't you? And it, it's those oh, yeah. interesting connections that you describe going back to, to the shtetl, which I'm very glad you pronounced because when I was reading, <laughs> I didn't. Sharnoff, is that? Sharnoff, yeah, yeah. And saying, actually, you know, you went back and it was bits of it are nice and bits of it aren't so nice. And you could kind of relate it to the place that your grandmother lived when she arrived in Long Island and the same kind of, you know, and she, she wanted to be living in Paris, not Sharnoff or Farmingdale in Long Island. And those senses of these kind of parallels that go across countries of the types of places and the types of people. I mean, one of the things that really does come very strongly through the book is something you say, you know, anti-Semitism is a form of xenophobia in the sense that it sees Jews as people who are not fully citizens of a country and will be in some way kind of against it, will work towards its destruction or its distress. And this is the nature of anti-Semitism. And as you say, you were writing this book when we were seeing, uh, is resurgence the right word? Has it ever gone away? But certainly a strengthening um, of anti-Semitism. That must have been so, so difficult. Well, it it was, but it also kind of spurred me on to write about it because I don't have a political column in the paper or anything. I sort of leave that to the political writers. But I definitely there were definitely things I wanted to say. Um, I am glad I restricted myself to only two references to Corbyn, and they are in the footnotes because he's now out, so it would have been irrelevant anyway. But it made me realize, it made me feel, okay, this is not just me wanging on about my family. This feels very relevant. And certainly when that, clip came out of Corbyn saying, oh, Zionists, they don't understand English irony or whatever it was. That really just like rang all these bells of, you know, oh, Jews, they're not really Polish. Jews, they're not really French. You know, that my grandmother had heard in her childhood. I mean, it's just kind of extraordinary to hear these echoes across the century like that. One of the things that you you also talk about, and it is such an interesting topic in in memoirs and in psychotherapy in particular this idea of inherited trauma 
And you're very clear that the things that you've gone through, the experiences that you've gone through in your life are not you know, directly comparable to things that your father's family went through. However, you do say that somehow you carry within you this feeling of what happened to your family. Yeah, it's. I mean, it is something that just haunted me and is very much a part of who I am and has become very much part of my identity. I think it very much haunts my father and he makes it not who he is in a strange sort of way. He ha- he doesn't really think of himself in any way primarily as Jewish. He doesn't keep in touch with his family, although he does sort of hoard photos of them around him in a way that my grandmother, I guess, did with her shoebox. But for me, it's very much shaped how I see myself, how I want to raise my children. You know, I'm sure a large part of me writing this book was that I want my children to know what their ancestors went to to ensure their survival. So yeah, it, it is something that's very much part of me, and I feel like I've gotten it out of my system a little bit. But it's still, still, a, you know, one of the main defining parts of me is is the story of my grandmother. I think. Yes, you did actually have your your third child, didn't you? A week after you'd finished writing the book, which I think you said she had great timing. <laughs> well, I thought it was great timing. Then it turned out to be terrible timing because I'd spend the whole maternity leave doing edits, which was not what I wanted to do with maternity <laughs> leave at all. So literally the whole maternity leave was just me on the bed with her next to me and going through endless edits of the UK and US versions of this bloody book. And I thought, oh, why, why can't I be swanning around the tape modern? <laughs> I want to be doing, I want to be having lunch in the Wolseley. So it was like I was already on lockdown anyway. But it was great. I'm glad I didn't have to write the book after she came because that would have been a bit much probably because it's just too much research and too many papers flying around but there is that feeling isn't there of kind of as you said this is something that you want your children to read this is is something that you want to be part of your family story and you're forging a connection with those members of the family who've who've gone before you I just wonder I guess how it leaves you feeling now you know it's gone out into the world it's getting a great response do you find yourself thinking well wow, what do I write next? <laughs> yes, and unfortunately, I was stupid enough to sign a two-book deal, so I actually do have to write another thing. And my mother said to me, oh, why don't you write about my family now? And I just thought, not if you paid me a million pounds, am I doing this again? Oh, my God. I want to write one of those like books people like keep by the loo that is like a day in the life of my dog or something. That sounds great right, to me, right? right. <laughs> something well, you know, I something think really that. easy. <laughs> Now, Hadley, tell me, you are writing up a storm uh, during the lockdown. You've written some fantastic stuff. I loved your your column at the weekend in the kind of tradition of Nora Ephron, who I think you, me and many, many other people just regard as a kind of touchstone of of just something that keeps us going. Um, Are you finding that writing is hard? Are you finding it's a way that it kind of, you think, well, the before is the before, and now you've kind of got to learn how to address the world again in a way. I know, and it's kind of a nightmare, to be honest, the magazine column. I mean, I love it. I'm not dissing it. But because of the lockdown and everything's being a bit complicated, I now have to file it 11 days ahead. So I'm going to have to write tomorrow for not this Saturday, but the Saturday after. Um, so And you have no idea what, how the world is going to feel. 
also nothing's happening so it's sort of like ironic for a columnist like what do you do when nothing's happening but um I guess we'll find out the hardest thing really for me is I also do interviews for the paper and I was supposed to be, this is so heartbreaking. I was supposed to be in New York two weeks ago and I was going to interview Stephen Sondheim and Ann Tyler who are like my two. That's no fun though. That would have been no fun. God, no fun at all. But the two people I've waited like my entire, this is why I went into journalism was to interview those two. And so Ann Tyler was restricted to a phone call and Sondheim I feel may may just be offered up really so that's hard so now just doing interviews on the phone is a bit it's it's less fun than going off and meeting people but god knows i'm grateful to have a job i know i'm in a very privileged position that i still have a job during all this and you know we at least have books to read um although i don't know whether you've found your concentration is a little bit strange at the minute I've actually been all right with it, but then I am reading Craig Brown's brilliant biography of the Beatles right now, one, two, three, four, which is written in little chunks. So maybe that's the perfect coronavirus book to read right now. So I highly recommend that. The main problem is just getting the books, really. I'm so used to being able to get books right away from evil Amazon um, and other online delivery places. And now that's not possible. And bookshops are all shut. So I do think it's quite funny that I spent 20 years on a book and I put it out when all the bookshops shut. <laughs> I feel like that's a Jewish well, joke in itself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I get, but you know what? I think at, this is the point where you, you have to channel great uncle Alex, who would not have been defeated by any of this and would, would, I mean, I, I say this to you as if I know the man for heaven's sake. Um, but I felt like I did. It's a strange thing to say how much I enjoyed the book because there are some shockingly sad moments in it. But nonetheless, there is something about being drawn into a world and thinking, God, families just never stop being fascinating. Um, it was brilliant. Thank you. Thank you so much, Hadley. And thank you for talking about it. Now, as we all now say, when this is all over, I hope you will come actually to Cambridge and we'll we'll kind of meet and talk about it in person, I hope. But until then, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so, so much. Oh, well, thanks, Alex. I'd love to come to Cambridge. I went to school in Cambridge, so I have very, very fond associations of Cambridge. Oh, so homecoming queen then. Oh, time. very good. Very good. <laughs> that was Hadley Freeman, who joined me for the first ever episode of the Cambridge Literary Festival podcast. I do hope you enjoyed it. The Cambridge Literary Festival is a small charity run by a team of four people and the Listening Festival has been put together by a group of us who've all donated their time to make it happen. If you'd like to donate something to support the festival's future, please visit the Literary Festival website to do so. Thanks very much and see you next time.